right. Okay, well, we are continuing along in our study of John's Gospel. We have been in this study now for like, I don't know, 12 weeks. Just now to chapter 2. Yes. Uh, yeah, there we go. <laughs> um, let's read the whole chapter and then we're going to focus on the first half of it today. But I want us to read the whole thing. So if you would, stand for the reading of God's Word. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there. And Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. And when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had, that, had turned, that had been turned into wine, and they did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside, and he said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples. There he stayed for a few days. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So, he made a whip out of cords, and he drove all from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold the doves, he said, Get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. His disciples remembered that it is written, Zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him, What sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, It has taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. And then they believed with the scripture, with the words and the words that Jesus had spoken. 
Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover festival, many people saw the signs he was performing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all people. And he did not need any testimony about mankind, for he knew what was in each person. This is the word of the Lord. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Jesus' name, amen. You guys can be seated. Well, one of the reasons we, we were just now in chapter 2 is because we spent like 10 weeks in John's prologue, uh, in the first 18 verses of the book. The reason we did that is because the prologue holds the interpretive keys for the whole rest of John's gospel. We grasp the prologue, then we have the, the rest of the gospel falls into place. So these two stories that come together in chapter 2, uh, John puts them here for a reason, right after the prologue. Um, and the reason is because he wants us to look at these stories, to interpret them, to hear them through the lens of the prologue. But, you know, we only do this every week once, so it's been a while, so... What part of the prologue should we use to hear this? Well, I'll show you this part. Remember these words, John 1:14. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Out of His fullness we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So those words, out of his fullness, we have all received grace and grace, grace upon grace already given. He's the one and only Son who's full of grace and truth. The law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Those, that idea that God became human, the eternal Son became human in Jesus Christ so that we could receive God's grace and know God's truth, that's the theme of these two stories in chapter 2. We have one story, Jesus turning water into wine, that's all about grace. And we have another story, Jesus overturning tables and temple, that's all about truth. Now, grace and truth come from Jesus, which means grace and truth always come together. So they're both present in each story. But the water to wine story, the overwhelming theme is one of God's abundance poured out on us in unmerited favor. It's grace. In the second story, the theme is God's truth. We'll get to the second story next week. Today I want to focus on this first story. Before we dig into the grace part, well, I guess this is related, um, but it's not the main idea, but it's worth mentioning. It's worth mentioning the fact that this story has to do with alcohol use. Now, I grew up in a context where in church, uh, the common culture and understanding was that the Bible unilaterally condemned alcohol use in every situation. 
That's how I grew up. Some of us grew up in churches where, uh, I, I'm going to guess here, that maybe some of us grew up in churches where everybody drank alcohol. And maybe nobody even talked about it. Alcohol is sort of a polarizing thing in church. And this story very often gets used in reference to defend various views on alcohol in the church. I think it's worth taking just a minute to mention this. Um, this story has been uh, appropriately referenced to show, to the surprise of many, even myself at one point in my life, that the idea that the Bible condemns alcohol use in all situations, the story shows us that that's just not true. It's false. Here in this story, we see Jesus, the Lord of life, creating wine. Some people might argue that this wine was actually secretly grape juice. That's crazy. Why? Because the head waiter said, this is the best wine ever. Nobody thinks grape juice is the best wine ever. So we see in this story that Jesus, God in flesh, celebrates, even creates, even gives freely wine. The Bible celebrates. However, this story has been inappropriately cited in order to defend the idea that drunkenness is okay. Some people say, he created 150 gallons of wine. Surely it's okay to drink as much as I want. Well, when we put this story in the context of everything that scriptures say about alcohol, about how we eat and how we drink, that's just not an appropriate interpretation either. The difference between celebration of wine and drunkenness, there is different as feasting and gorging. And the line between the two, although and if we get down to the minutia, it might move a little bit in between each different person, those lines are clear. So I want to get that out of the way because this passage does have a lot to say about alcohol, but this passage is not about alcohol. It's not the main point. So let's, let's recognize that it, it's celebrating alcohol use, but it doesn't endorse uh, drunkenness. And let's put that, let's, take, let's say, okay, and let's put it on the shelf, and let's go back to the story, because I know for many of us, we, we might get hung up there in the story, okay? not about alcohol, it's about Jesus. It's about the grace of Jesus. Okay, so what does this story have to tell us about the grace of Jesus? How should we interpret it? Well, is John, remember the, that thing, remember the principle we learned when we're reading John's Gospel? With John, the way that he writes is just as important as what he's writing. John says, a lot through his style, through his arrangement of ideas, almost just as much as what he's saying with actual words. That rings true here. It's not insignificant that after he finishes telling about this magnificent miracle, this crazy day where Jesus and his disciples were invited to a family friend's wedding and they ran out of wine and he turned water into wine. John gives this account and then he says at the end, he says, uh, 
What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. That phrase right there, John is cueing us. He's telling us, this is how you should interpret the story. This is where you should put it. What's happening here in this episode, this thing I just described, Jesus did this crazy thing. Um, what Jesus actually was doing, what Jesus did here at that wedding in Galilee, it was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory. And at that moment, his disciples believed. So with the rest of the time we have, 18 minutes, let's look at this story through that lens. We have at the beginning this thing about grace and truth. We know that this is going to be about grace. And we have this thing at the end. It's a sign. Jesus is revealing glory. And it causes people to believe. So now let's go back and look at the story. Okay? Sign. What does it mean that this was a sign? What Jesus did in Cana of Galilee that day was a sign. Well, again, John, his context, his style is so important. If you're looking at this in a physical Bible or maybe on a phone app, you can, this story starts in John chapter 2, verse 1. But if you look just above that, the last verses in John chapter 1, we talked about this last week. It's the story of when Jesus called those first disciples. And the last guy Jesus talked to there was the guy Nathaniel. And the last thing Jesus said to Nathaniel was, um, Very truly I tell you, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. He says that to Nathaniel. And then the next words, On the third day a wedding took place in Cana of Galilee. You see that? That's significant. <clears throat> When Jesus says that thing to Nathaniel, he, he says, hey, you are going to see, you're following me now, you're going to see the heavens open and angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Jesus isn't pulling those words out of a hat. He's referencing an old, an old story, an old story that we find in the book of Genesis, uh, the story of Jacob, the patriarch. Jacob had a vision. Have you ever heard of Jacob's ladder? This is the story of Jacob's ladder. Jacob had a vision one day when he was traveling through a barren land. He fell asleep. He had this vision. And in the vision, he saw a ladder or a stairway uh, extending between heaven and earth, and angels were going up and down the ladder. And when he woke up, he uh, poured oil, anointed the place that he was laying, and he named the place Bethel, house of God. Bethel, house of God. And Jacob thought that the place that he had that vision was a connection between heaven and earth. Jacob thought that that place that he had woken up from the vision was a place where, like one theologian says, heaven and earth overlap. Now, when Jesus says to Nathaniel, this nice Jewish young man who had probably heard that story about Jacob's ladder a billion times, he says, look, I'm, I'm going to tell you, you follow me, one day you are going to see the heavens open and angels ascending and descending Nathaniel's going, yeah, 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 ascending and descending in the land of Bethel. Jesus doesn't say that. 
He says, you're going to see angels ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Son of Man was a term he used for himself. Jesus tells this guy Nathaniel, hey, look, you follow me, you're going to find out that when Jacob thought that the connection between heaven and earth was this geographic place, he was wrong. The connection between heaven and earth is me. And you follow me, you're going to see heaven and earth coming together. You're going to see them overlapping. You're going to see there's not going to be any difference between the two. It's going to be crazy. And then John writes, three days later, here's Jesus in Cana of Galilee with his disciples, and they go to a wedding, and Jesus' mom comes up to him and says, they're out of wine. And then we get the story of this miracle. This miracle becomes a sign. A sign of what? Well, a sign that heaven and earth are overlapping on Jesus. A sign that Jesus is Jacob's ladder. It's a signal that what he told Nathaniel was going to happen is happening. Do you see it? Signs are visible cues. They cue us about realities that are symbolized in the sign. If you're driving down the road, you see a sign that says, Road closed ahead. Even if you can't physically see with your eyes, the road closure. Maybe there's a turn of a corner, there's a hill, you can't see it. You see a sign that says, road closed ahead, take the detour on the left. And really, by faith, unless you're just an unbelieving driver, you're going to go, I saw the sign, now I believe, I'm going to look for the detour. Signs cue us visually, and they spark faith. They help us to believe the thing that they symbolize. And Jesus here is working a sign to help Nathaniel and the rest of the guys. And it wasn't just guys. Mary was there too. His followers. To see that something significant is happening in him. So John says, what Jesus did in Canaan on that day, it was a sign through which he revealed his glory. Through which he revealed his glory. Now, glory is a word that in our culture means a lot of different things. Um, some of those are positive. Some of those are kind of negative. Uh, glory can be when something amazing and beautiful happens. Glory can also be when like a conquering king goes into a land and gains glory by conquering everybody, right? So, what does it mean when it says glory? Um, that word has a lot of stuff attached to it. Well, when John the Gospel writer talks about glory, he's already given us a definition for it. We read it earlier. It's in the prologue. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as an only son from the Father, only begotten son, full of grace. When John talks about the glory of Jesus, John the Gospel writer, he's talking about the God-human connection in Jesus. He's talking about the fact that the, the eternal Son of God, who is God, remember we spent all that time in the prologue, he is God, he is the Son of God, he is eternally generated from the Father, he's next to the Father, but he's one with the Father, that great mystery we see in the Trinity, that God the Son becomes human, and in that human being, God 
and human, there's togetherness and no separation. Two natures and one single person. John the Gospel writer calls that thing Jesus' glory. And that makes sense because it is a glorious truth. Now, think back. God-human connection. God and mankind together. Heaven and earth overlapping Jacob's ladder. The two are connected here. John is saying, in this sign, we saw his glory. We could see it happen. We could see it manifest. It became clear. And we believed. Many of you know, those of you who know me well, know that I have a vision disability. Uh, part of that is that unchecked, unregulated, in my natural state, uh, I see double vision all the time. Double vision is natural for me. I actually didn't know it was weird until the doctor was like, what you're seeing is not right. I was like, oh, not everybody saw it. Uh, but that's a different story. Anyway, I see double vision all the time. And uh, that's because my brain is taking information from both eyes. My eyes don't work together well. It doesn't differentiate between the two. So they're just both there. So in order to cope with that, I wear contact lenses. Some of you might have contacts set up like this. One is set up for real close. One is set up for far away. And that makes both images coming to my brain very, very different. That helps my brain see, oh, these are different, I'm just going to take one at a time. And sometimes, though, that doesn't even work. And some of you might have noticed that maybe when we're having a conversation, uh, I struggle with eye contact, that's one reason for that. Uh, some of you may have noticed that sometimes when we're talking, my right eye just closes. Most of the time, I'm not aware of that. Uh, or maybe when I'm reading, uh, I'll cover my left eye. These are coping, coping mechanisms, mostly subconscious, that people with double vision do. Um, now, the reason I bring this up is because when we as human, finite human beings, when we try to process the glory of Jesus, his God-humanness, God-human one person, we tend to see him in double. It is so hard for us to pull those two together and see one person fully God and fully human. We tend to look at him and see Jesus, uh, who is God, in some situations, maybe when we're praying, when we think about him rising from the dead, or working miracles, and in other situations we look and we see Jesus the man. Maybe when we read about his suffering and his death, when we read about his relationship with his mom, uh, we, we tend to see one or the other. And we read the Gospels, and we, it's, it's a double vision thing. It's hard to see the whole Jesus in one person together. And it's not just us. It's always been like that. Why? Because the God-human glorious connection in Jesus is crazy. It's too much for us. Our brain can't process that information. So... What Jesus does here in this miracle is he gives his disciples a way to see it. He accommodates to them, sort of like the contacts I wear. He shows them in a moment, this is what God human looks like together. This is single image Jesus. 
take the water from the purification jars, take it to the head waiter, watch what happens. Now, how is it? How does that work? Well, think about this. Let's look through the, the, the details. First, we see human Jesus. We see a guy in his 30s at a family wedding that somehow he, him and his family is connected to being pulled aside by his mom. Now, uh, people who are grown-ups who have parents in here, after you became a grown-up, have you ever had a time where you were pulled aside by your mom or your dad and then they asked you to do something and you kind of had to say, Mom, Dad, thank you. I love you. I want to honor you. Um, but there's a boundary here. Like, I'm, I'm kind of a grown-up now. Um, so uh, my time has not come yet for that thing. Uh, we see Jesus having one of those awkward conversations with his mom. She goes up right away. He says, woman, by the way, in that time, that's, that's, a, that's a polite way. He's like he's saying, yes, ma'am. Uh, what does this have to do with me? Now, scholars, some scholars say that what Jesus here is doing is saying no to his mom. Putting this, mom, don't tell me what to do. Don't take orders from you. Some scholars look at this and say, his mom comes up and he changes his mind. He, changes, he honors her. He does what she says. And the truth is, I look at this text, I can't tell which one it is. I think it's kind of both. I think she comes up and says, we're out of wine. And he's like, mom, this doesn't have anything to do with me. Uh, my time has not yet come. She looks at the servants. Do whatever he tells you to do. And I think he goes, okay. Okay, we'll do it. That's such a human thing. And then he says, take the water from the purification jars, take it to the, fill it up, take it to the head waiter. And he's, this is the greatest wine in the world. That's a God thing. Why? Because of the metaphysical transformation? Yes, but there's more. Running out of wine at a first century Jewish wedding was terribly shameful. It would have marked this family and this couple getting married for life in that community. Jesus removes shame from that family. Only God can remove your shame. That's a God thing. Jesus takes water from purification jars. This was something that Jewish ritual that was used. We're going to purify ourselves before we go into worship. And turns it into wine. Now when we think about wine and Jesus, what does wine symbolize? How are we purified before God? Cleansed from our sins? How is our shame taken away? By being washed. By communing. By taking his cup of the new covenant. Jesus is preaching a gospel message here. We see God there. And altogether here we see the God man. We see the glory of Jesus. God human. We look at him and we see, that's us. I've had a conversation like that with my, with my dad and my mom. We look at him and we say, that's the Lord. He takes away shame. And that's grace. That's what grace is. To go to the God that we cannot get near. That's too big for us. We are full of sin. We can't even comprehend him. But we go to him and he says, look at me. I have made myself visible to you. You can see me now. Single image Jesus. And then we say, oh, but Lord, I am out of wine. 
have my sin, I have my shame, I can't do it. And he says, come to me. Draw the water from the purification jar. Come and worship. Do the thing you know. Open your mouth in prayer. Kneel before me and watch me transform it into abundance, into blessing, into covering, into purity, into joy. That's what he does. So, here at this wedding, he gives a sign by which we see his grace, by which we see his glory, and his disciples believed. They believed in him. So then we should think, oh, well, do I believe in him? That's, that's the way we should respond to him. Am I believing? What's interesting, this story coming right after the Jesus calling the first disciples, it's kind of weird at first that it says his disciples believed in him. Because if we're reading, we should say, huh, I thought they already believed. We just read about how the disciple Andrew went to his brother Simon and says, we found the Messiah. Sounds like believing. We just read about how Philip went to his friend Nathaniel and said, we found the one Moses wrote about. Sounds like believing to me. Mary believed the whole time. We read about that during Advent. So how is it that these disciples who already believed see this sign and then believe again? Can, can you believe upon belief upon belief? Yes, you can. Yes, you can. That phrase, they believed in him. If we read it in the Greek, with John the Gospel writer, him or his scribe or whoever wrote it in, uh, it, would, it actually says, if we translate it absolutely literally, it says they believed into him. And there's something there. There is a little bit there that gets lost in translation. They believed into Jesus. Think about that. They took the belief that they had and they pushed it further in. Further into him. That's active. So the question that leaves all of us with, some of us have never believed in him before, and what this story should leave you with is, take some time, if you would, consider the sign, look at him. Is this the Jesus that you thought existed before, or is this a different kind of Jesus? And you're invited to consider belief. I think, though, most of us in here have believed before. And we are being called to believe again and again and again. And we do that by taking our belief and pushing it further and further into Him. Maybe you need to take some time considering the fact that you too much consider Jesus as Maybe you're just looking at the God, Jesus. And you need to learn from his human nature. Maybe you're just looking at human Jesus. You need to learn from God. Maybe you need to see the whole Christ altogether. It takes grace to do that. Cry out to God and ask him to help you to see him, to show you the signs. Or maybe it just means that you, somewhere today, you get alone before God and you say, Lord, I'm out of wine too. I got shame in my life. Low on resources. I don't know how to do the thing. I don't know how to be the person. 
let's just be honest, I am just completely messed up. I'm just looking at you. He'll answer you. He'll turn your water into wine. That's what he does. And then here in a moment, all of us are coming.